At GBQ, we're always counting. Now we're making your time count with this episode of Empower Hour. Start the clock. Daniel Burris, I am thrilled to have you join us today on the Empower Hour. Welcome. Hey, thank you. What a pleasure to be with you. So it's a mouthful, but if you're not familiar with Daniel's work, Daniel's considered one of the world's leading technology forecasters and innovation expert. You'll hear the term futurist. He speaks a lot on these topics. He's established a worldwide reputation for predicting the future. I don't think it's a crystal ball in a closet somewhere. He's got a method to the madness, or actually what he'll tell you later is a science. Daniel's um, the author of seven books, including one that I've read, The Anticipatory Organization, which is about turning the inevitable. Uh, Even in this crazy world, some of it's inevitable and we can handle it. It's disruptive, but it's change that can be managed to our favor. That's the the purpose of the book, and I think the purpose of Daniel's career. So any more to add to that that beginning, Daniel? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, the, the key is most of us tend to be passive receivers of the future as it unfolds rather than active shapers of it. And I think the reason for that is, and I've met prime ministers, I've met many presidents and worked with them. I've worked with, uh, you know, some of the Fortune 50 and Fortune 10 and Fortune 5 CEOs. And most of them, actually all of them, have a misconception about the future. And that is, other than death and taxes, it's completely unpredictable. You cannot predict the future. That's impossible. And when we have a lot of uncertainty, as we're all facing today, it seems even crazier to try to look at the future because it looks like, well, now it's even crazier than ever. There's nothing but uncertainty. But in a world of uncertainty, I have to ask myself, am I certain of nothing or do I have some certainty? One of the things that we're going to do today is to help people to see how much certainty you can find. For example, after winter comes, and we already know the answer to that, spring followed by summer. That's a cycle. Stock market will go down. Will it go down forever? No, it'll go up. Will it go up forever? No, it will go down. Warren Buffett has done well by that. When everyone is selling and panicking, he's buying. When everyone is buying, he's selling and has done quite well with that. We have business cycles, weather cycles, biological cycles. Actually, I've identified over 300 cycles that allow you to get a window toward the future. But one of the things that I like to teach and talk about is the other kind of change. That actually is predictable. Cyclical change is one of them. And I think everyone here has a pretty good handle on cyclical change, even though you haven't thought about it. It's part of your world. You actually live by it. You just haven't realized it. The other part, though, is what economists haven't understood. That's why economists have been uh, not that good lately, because they rely on cyclical change to make their forecasts. The other kind of change, I would call it linear in that it is not a cycle that goes back and forth. It's one way slash exponential because it's driven by technologies that are accelerating at an exponential level. For example, once you get a smartphone, you're not going back to a dumb phone. Once the people in China park their bicycle and get a car, they're not going to all go back to the bicycle. Once people in India get refrigeration for their home, they're not going to say, we don't need refrigeration. And there, by the way, are problems with all of that which we could pre-solve and predict, or we could let them play out. And by the way, there's tremendous opportunities that we could take action on. So what I want us to do is to learn how to find certainty in an uncertain world, how to be not just reactionary, but what I call anticipatory, anticipating disruptions before they disrupt, 
so that you turn disruption into a choice, anticipating problems before you have them so you can pre-solve them and move forward faster, rather than just, again, react as quickly as we can. So with all of that, I think back about 1997, you started doing the work that you're doing about 40 years ago. I graduated from high school and started college that year. So you've got a couple years on me, but about a decade after college, I built wendys.com, the first website Wendy's had. And it was this tremendous creative set of words and HTML and pictures. And 25 years, fast forward now, you look at wendys.com and they have rewards program. They have um, apps. So there's your Go to your smartphone. You're not coming back. I'm going to interact with them. They even go so far as to incent people not to come to the restaurant, to pick up or have food delivered instead of coming into the store. And, and by the way, they've used gamification as well. Yes. They've actually created some games for the younger demographic, which, by the way, they've been a leader in. So that's been very impressive. So it, I didn't do it. I should have done it. Jumped back and seen if I could have found because I, I went to the Wayback Machine to look at the website. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I should have jumped back and seen, you know, what did Daniel say was going to happen? Um, but but this highly interactive world, some of that was anticipatory 25 years ago when I started banging code on that Wendy's site. Well, absolutely. Uh, again, uh, as you said, I've written uh, uh, seven books. One of the books, which was an international bestseller, was called Technotrans. And that was published way back in 1993. Yep. In that book, you can see a little section called Blockbuster is Busted. That's in bold. Underneath that, if you read it, you'll see a description of what Netflix became. Now, again, I couldn't predict that they would call it Netflix. You got to leave out the parts you can be wrong about. But I knew that we would have that. And if you look at it, uh, actually, my list of the top 20 technologies that would exponentially shape the future, and this is back in 1983, had distributed computing in the internet as one of them, as well as digital, as well as genetic engineering, as well as fiber optics, as well as photovoltaics. In other words, a lot more to the future is visible than most of us realize. And now let me give a, a really important thing, Doug, and that is that I'm not about being the only kind of guy that can do this. Now, if I was the only kind of guy that can do this, and I've done very well by it, I would just keep it to myself. But frankly, we can all learn to do this. And I think the two most important moments in a human's life is the day you're born and the day you find out why you were born. And I'm fortunate that I found out that I was put on the planet to teach. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be on this interview. So rather than just tell you, the listeners, some trends and say, good luck, what I really want to do is give you a mindset, even during this short time together, that can help you more accurately find certainty because when you have certainty, you know what you have? You have the confidence to make a bold move. When you're uncertain, you don't have confidence. When you're uncertain, you hesitate. When you're uncertain, you don't write big checks. When you're uncertain, you don't say yes. You say, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. When people have certainty, they can innovate. They can move beyond. So if you go back to even the uh, the web, I remember I was I gave a speech to the American Booksellers Association uh, when I was launching my 93 book, which was just a little around two years before Amazon was started. And in that speech to all of the booksellers, there were 10,000 booksellers in the audience. You can still get the audio cassette of that, by the way. 
I said, I made a prediction. I said, there will be a virtual bookstore. And if you listen to what I said, I was kind of describing what Amazon would be. Again, could I predict Bezos would start it? No, got to leave it up to the parts you can be wrong about. But the tools to do it were there. And if the tools are there, you know what? Humans will do it because we're innovative little buggers. We will do these things. What I'm getting at is, to answer your question, yes, I was indeed talking about that on Larry King and all the other interviews I did at that time in books and articles. But again, is that because I'm cool? No, I'm using a methodology that every one of you can use. And so you refer to that in some of the other materials I've read as a science. And that isn't about the cycles. It's about the trends. So to me, that's the big deal is understanding the difference between cycle and trend and how to apply trends. Is that the, really the core of the science? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, you know, I've started six companies that, that have done well, and actually four of them were national leaders in the first year. And so I, I don't just write books and give speeches. By the way, before that, I spent the beginning of my career teaching biology and physics. So I'm really a science guy. I'm a researcher. So all of my stuff is based on tested, proven research. And you mentioned the word trend. So let me address that right off the bat. There is no shortage of trends. As a matter of fact, it's pretty easy to predict when we'll get a new list of trends right around the beginning of a new year each year. You know, see, the future is actually quite predictable. Very predictable. Yeah, very predictable. It's amazing how much certainty there is out there. So the problem isn't a list of trends. The problem is which ones will happen and which ones won't. And when will they happen? Well, I've come up with a solution for that based on 40 years of research and work. The Pentagon is using it right now. I'm an advisor to them. Huge companies are, but small ones are too. And we can all use that. So here it is in a nutshell, giving you a real short Cliff Notes version. And that is that all trends fall into one of two categories. They're either what I call a hard trend based on a future fact that will happen. Now, what that means is it cannot be stopped. It's going to happen. And what that does is it lets you see disruptions before they disrupt, letting you have a choice. Either you're going to be the disruptor or the disrupted. But if you can see it before it happens, now I've given you a choice. And frankly, if you want to choose to be disrupted, that's okay. At least I gave you the option. At least the hard trend lets you do that. It also lets you see problems before you would have them. Let's face it, how many times have people said, well, I knew that was going to happen. And I would say, well, then why did you let it? So pre-solving predictable problems allows you to move forward faster. So those are hard trends. And then the other category is soft trends. And soft trends are based on assumptions that may or may not happen. A lot of times we think of them as, as hard as future facts, but not really. These are things that can be changed. And let me say right off the bat, I love both. What do I love about a hard trend? It lets me use change and disruption to my advantage. It lets me take advantage of the speed of change rather than be a prisoner of it or a, or a victim of it. What do I love about soft trends? If you don't like them, you can change them. And there's a lot of things right now we don't like. Well, you could write it out or you could change that. And technology and other uh, categories of hard trends lets you do that. So there are two key things that I've just taught everyone. Let me flush them out for you right now so that it's clear to everyone. Whenever you are talking about a trend from this point on, 
I want you to ask yourself, is it a future fact that cannot be stopped? Or is it a soft trend that can be stopped for some reason? And if it's negative, what are the strategies you can put in place to make it work for you instead of against you? Because again, a soft trend can be changed. So there's two elements. One, is it a hard trend or a soft trend? And the second thing I'm teaching you is a trend by itself is frankly academic and valueless. Let me stop with that a second. I've been studying this for 40 years. I just told you a trend by itself has got no value. It's academic. So what gives it value when you attach an actionable strategy to it? Then it bursts into actionable life. So is it a hard trend or a soft trend? If you're talking about a trend from now on, a lot of you are going to be doing a lot of planning. So is it can it be stopped or not? Is it something that is an if or a maybe, or is it a future fact? And then secondly, what's the opportunity for you, for your organization, or for you personally? And when you start doing that, all of a sudden, you'll find a pathway forward. So let's apply it to the crazy chaos that everybody feels came from the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, we could have looked at demographics and seen we were about to drop into a, call it a demographic cliff or a large change. Pandemic hits, it seems like all of a sudden everybody disappears. However, we knew from the the trending in demographics that we were going to have some challenges with the workforce, even without the, the pandemic. So I hear, I can't wait till things go back before the pandemic, but in your you know, application of hard trend, it, it was happening anyway. So as a planner, if I adjust by finding different sources for my workforce, uh, adjusting my hiring requirements, going offshore, that's a plan to deal with the fact that that demographic trend is with us. Is that a, a good application or a good understanding of the, the, the application? Yeah. Yes. As a matter of fact, I have literally hundreds of organizations that are using my anticipatory organization learning system uh, around the world. And they identify, obviously, hard trends as well as soft trends and opportunities. And what was amazing is pre-pandemic, before March 2020, there were obviously a lot of hard trends identified by all those firms. By the way, was it 10 of them, 20 of them? No, they had thousands of hard trends they have identified. It's amazing how many you can find. Now, here's what's interesting. None of those hard trends changed or stopped. As a matter of fact, most of them were amplified by the pandemic. For example, if you look, there are three categories of hard trends. Let me mention the three real quickly, and then I'll give you some examples. Because the pandemic did not change or say, all right, those hard trends are now soft. No, they can't be changed, remember. So there's three categories of hard trends. Let me give them to you very quickly right now. One is technology. And for example, the increasing use of let's say the cloud. Well, actually, after the pandemic struck, there were banks that weren't using the cloud that started to use the cloud like crazy. As a matter of fact, the uh, use of the cloud accelerated 10 years in a matter of six months during the March of, from March, 2020 until the end of 2020. The use of AI, the use of, and again, I've got a list of over 25 technology hard trends that, as a matter of fact, I just published my new list. And if you go to Burris, B-U-R-R-U-S dot com on that homepage and just scroll down a little bit, you can download the list for free. Go get it. Look at it right away. And every one of those actually was accelerated rather than, oh, they just became soft. 
So as I'm not going to go through all that list right now. It would eat up all of our time. Rather, go and download that right now. It won't cost you a dime. And I think you'll find some real value in planning 2023 and beyond. So one category is hard trends. Didn't change a thing. The uh, next category is, get this, demographics. And demographics is, for example, there's uh, 68 million baby boomers in the United States. Uh, Hard trend. They're not going to get young all of a sudden. They're going to get older. And we know they're going to get older chronologically. All right. So I can't change your birthday. We're going to get older. So when you look at that and you start looking for opportunities, all of a sudden you can start seeing some future. For example, let me give you something that does not exist today and show you how you can innovate. By the way, I'm named in many, many, many patents. Now, I'm not making money on a lot of these patents, but I'm named in many patents because when I'm giving speeches, and I've given thousands of keynote speeches over the years all around the world, I share these hard trend opportunities with audiences. And, you know, I can't invent all this stuff. So I just say, look, this is going to be a multi-million dollar idea. Why don't you go do it? I'm going to do that right now for you. By the way, any of you listening could go and make a lot of money on this because it's based on a hard trend. Here it is. When people get to be 85, 90, 95, what happens? Statistically, look at the statistics. A lot of them fall. And when they fall, what happens? Well, they break a hip or they break an arm or a shoulder or sometimes all three. A lot of them end up in the hospital. Almost all of them end up in the hospital. Some of them die from it. Broken hips and pneumonia are the two biggest causes of death when you're over 90. So why does that happen? Well, their vision isn't that good. They've got, even if they got progressive lenses or when they look down, they can't see that well because it's set up for reading, right? So what if we use that knowing we've got an increasing number of elderly in the United States, the fastest growing age category, get this, is 100 and beyond out of all age categories. That's shocking. And that's the fastest growing category right now. All right, there it is right there. That's a real statistic. Okay, so when you think about that, what's the opportunity here? Well, we could get one of those little squishy little rubbery bands that could go around any kind of shoe or slipper and put on the front of it a little Bluetooth sensor. And that little Bluetooth sensor goes to where? It goes to a hearing aid, or if they don't happen to wear a hearing aid, although most older people do, you can put a little thing in your ear that comes with it, and then you can hear And if there's a step down, it'll say step down. If there's a step up, it'll say step up. If Johnny's toys in the way, it'll say Johnny's toys in the way again. And you know what we'll do? We'll have less people falling. By the way, that does not exist, what I described right now. Now, I'm going to ask a question to all of the listeners right now, and I would like you to answer it to yourself. And that is, do you think, well, we're never going to see anything like that? No, I think all of you already know, having me describe it to you and describe the problem, you know we will see something like that. Why? Because if it can be done, it will be done. If you don't do it, someone else will. How would you like to innovate like that in your own company? How would you like to innovate like that with your own customers and clients? And by the way, oh, that's just one of the many powers of this methodology. Uh, It goes on and on and on. So we've got uh, demographics. By the way, when you sell, to your customers, do you have a prime method and methodology for selling? Well, 
I would say, are you selling different to Gen Z versus Gen Y versus all the other generations? Because they all use technology different. They all listen with different ears. They all respond differently. Do you have a generational system for doing that? Most of us haven't really taken advantage of that. If you have a retail facility, do you know who your customers are? For example, if your customers are primarily baby boomers and older, you know what you need in your retail outlet? You better have comfortable chairs and you better have some really nice bathrooms. If you have younger demographics, mainly Gen X, Gen Y, and that's your main customer in a retail outlet, you don't even need a bathroom. By the way, you don't need chairs to sit down and rest in either. You see what I'm getting at? We can do so much when we start all of a sudden realizing, well, there's a bonanza in the hard trend of demographics. This is getting more so. And the third category will freak you all out because I'm sure you would not think this would be a category, but it definitely is. And that is government regulations. Because when we have a law, when we have something that is passed, there is all sorts of opportunity. Elon Musk has done quite well in business. Every business he started was funded by government regulation because government doesn't start businesses. What they do is create incentives for businesses to tap into it. A number of years ago, uh, we wanted to have e-patient records. So the government put aside and said, uh, there's billions of dollars for a company, any company, anybody that would like to create e-patient records. Well, there's a company based out of Madison, Wisconsin, that saw that, used government money, and now runs one of the biggest e-patient record uh, facilities in the United States. And by the way, makes huge amounts of money funded by the government. Can you tap into that? And the answer is, you sure can. As a matter of fact, remember, not long ago, we had a trillion dollar package for infrastructure and all of that set up. Have you hired a grant writer to help you to write some grants to get some of that money? Have you even looked at what? And you might say, well, I'm not in a company that could use infrastructure money but maybe some of your customers could. Maybe if you help your customer's customer, all of a sudden you might be doing quite well. By the way, can you predict the future of regulations? And you would say, well, surely you can't. Look at the divisions we have in government. And I would say, oh, yes, you can. You just can't predict it all. For example, let me ask all of you right now to answer this question to yourself, because I know there's a lot of you listening right now. Will we get more regulations on cybersecurity? Of course we will. Why? Because there's some hard trends at play that we can't ignore. There's some other things that we can debate. So instead of having a big list of things I can't predict, which does not empower me, I would rather have a list of things I'm certain about and I can predict because that's where opportunity lies. Instead of having a list of things I can't do, I want a list of things I can do and take action on. So I want an opportunity list and these hard trends and these three categories provide amazing opportunity for you all. Yeah, Daniel, I want to pick on one thing you said earlier and, and apply it to this government regulation piece. I think you said that when somebody in China gives up their bike and, and steps into a car, they're not going to ever go back. And when a government regulator goes from guidance or a small regulation to a bigger regulation, they're not going to go back to a smaller regulation. And I think that's certainly a part of that trend um, that just kind of fits into the, the other things you've been talking about. A lot of the work that we do in our IT, the technology solutions practice, is helping organizations respond, react, and, and really manage the regulatory expectations. And it it grows exponentially year to year. Yes. And, and I know a lot of us, by our nature, 
don't like regulations at all. We don't like regulations. And what I would say is, well, that's keeping you from seeing the opportunity. Well, I see I've got 28 principles in my books and in my anticipatory organization system. Hard trends and soft trends represents two of 28. One of them is opposites work better. Doing the absolute opposite. So instead of when you see a new regulation and creating the big list of things you don't like about it, which will, by the way, be endless, start with what you like about it. Let me give you a quick example. A couple of years ago, there was a 28-year-old teacher that noticed a new law that was passed in California. This is a true story. And this new law in California said within three years in the state of California, Half of the reading material of kindergartners and first graders has to be nonfiction. By the way, at the moment, all of it was fiction, the little engine that could. Hey, that's fiction. Well, you got three years. Now, when you hear that, what do you say to yourself? Ooh, it's California. Or you might say to yourself, what are, these people are crazy. What are they doing? I mean, again, don't they do something? And you get all upset. But this 28-year-old teacher did something else. She made three phone calls. She called the San Diego School District, the Los Angeles School District, the San Francisco School District. By the way, she chose wisely. They're very big. And she said, look, you got three years to abide by this law that's in place. If I provided those nonfiction books for those little kids, would you be interested? And they said, well, yeah. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase here and make this longer story short and say that they basically underwrote her company which is doing quite well. And guess what? She didn't have to go on Shark Tank. Why not? Because she was using what I'm talking about. She was seeing opportunity instead of challenge. So let's look at what we do like instead of what we don't like and take advantage of regulation. One other thing that you mentioned, and that is regulation doesn't get all of a sudden smaller. And one other little element here, it's not the regulation. It's how we implement it that becomes the problem. And of course, government and the regulators and the, the states that implement it and the countries that implement it, it can get it can get bloated and inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. Thankfully, there's some hard trends at play, especially on the technology side, that is giving us the ability to dramatically automate repetitive tasks and flush out and get far more efficient. And I would say there is a hard trend, not a soft trend, that we will see the lowering of costs of managing and running regulations that will be quite dramatic. And, and the private sector is going to, uh, in other words, businesses like yours and others out there are going to rise up and help government with those kind of tools because you know what? Government loves to save money. We're actually seeing it on, the, on that, very, that very trend. We're seeing that in our practice where we're applying tools that even a few years ago weren't available to automate some of the work that we do to either attest to if it's one of our auditors or to assess if it's one of our cyber analysts or one of our other, other technology specialists, how a company's running. And instead of a human doing that work, we now see automation that very quickly getting to the answer. And that's a trend that's in reaction to the government regulation. So it's spot on in terms of what our experience is to what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. I, once again, I want us to really open our eyes to what I'm going to say right now. And I know what's going on out there in the world. I'm paying attention just like you are. I'm seeing all the craziness and all the chaos and all the stuff that's happening. So here's the statement I will make. And I don't even have to be bold about it. I know it's absolutely 100% true. And that is right now, right now, there is more opportunity 
to not just change, but to transform every business process, product, and service than has ever happened on the history of the planet. And if all you see is problems, chaos, if all you see is uncertainty, if all you see is unpredictability, if all you see is the world is getting crazier and crazier and crazier, you're going to miss the gigantic opportunity. And I believe that most people on the planet are not evil. I believe that most people on the planet are good. Most people on the planet have good values. And by the way, I've been around the planet many times. I've given over the 40 years and a lot of consulting major keynote speaking. I mean, in just three airlines, I've got 6 million fly miles. So obviously, I've been around. And I would say I can verify for you. Most people on the planet are really good people. And you know what? I think everyone listening to this has really good values. So why don't we step up to the plate, apply those values, and create some amazing outcomes? Because you know what? It's all right there for you. Let's not get hung up on the negative. So a good way for people to start is to go to Burris.com and start with the trends list. It's kind of fun to read. I actually read it with my 25-year-old who's an application developer for one of the larger guitar manufacturers in the country. And I remember back in the day when I did web development and I was an evangelist for Digital Equipment Corporation. They're no longer, if you, you probably know, they were acquired by HP and they don't exist anymore. Technology shifted but I was doing evangelism for DEC and talking about the internet. And I did a presentation that they pre-canned. We'd go to whitehouse.gov and there was a time the Clintons were in the White House. And I would talk a little bit about how that was going to transform government. And then Socks the Cat was the family cat. And I clicked on Socks and had a, about a 30-second script that I had to speak. And if I got done <laughs> right at the right time, Socks would be out. And my son now works on a mobile app that if you want to learn how to play the guitar, you can download a whole book of music from your favorite musician and the app will teach you how to play guitar. And that's 25 years. Crazy. Yeah, very neat. Very neat. Well, let me let me jump in with a quick little story about that. Uh, I first uh, actually taught myself how to play guitar back when I was in upper elementary school. I put myself through college playing lead guitar in a rock band. And uh, I still play all the time. So just a little side note, but something else. And that is in the book before the anticipatory organization, which thankfully has been a number one on Amazon. My book before that was called Flash Foresight, which was the New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller. And by the way, if you haven't read that yet, you would love how the two work together. And in Flash Foresight, I talked about an app that I uh, developed as an experiment when I was writing that book. And I created the first mobile real estate app that was uh, number 18 uh, in the Apple Store within when it was launched and uh, was able to create uh, millions uh, you know, in months. And it was, uh, it was amazing. So in other words, the experiment I was doing was saying to myself, why don't I take the principles of the book, apply it to starting a company with the rule of not hiring anyone and not spending any money, and let's see how good it'll be. Obviously, so I'm just suggesting the principles that I'm talking about here have been tested, not just by me. Obviously, I've tested them in the companies that I've started. I had an airplane plane business where I manufactured airplanes. I mean, uh, I was a test pilot for my own planes. So, you know, I've, I've had a variety of companies that started over the decades, but rather than it's just me, through my books and through my learning system, anticipatory leader, anticipatory organization, 
what I've done is really empowered others to do it. And that's what gets me excited. So let me give you all an action I would like you to consider doing when we're finished with this interview. All right. Because I want to leave you with an action. What that action is, is I would like you to put aside one hour a week as an opportunity manager versus a crisis manager. Uh, By the way, an hour you could do, maybe not five, maybe not 10, but one hour you can do. And because you're going to spend the rest of your life in the future, hey, maybe you ought to think about it a little bit more. And in that hour, what I'd like you to do is to ask yourself, what are the hard trend future facts, those certainties that are shaping the future and what's the related opportunity? What are the soft trends that may or may not happen that I could change and modify to make them work for me instead of against me? You'll get a list. And what I'd like you to do is to narrow that list down to one opportunity because big lists never get done. But one thing, if you take action on it, and remember, if you don't do it, someone else will, you'll find it to be a very useful amount of time. And that doesn't sound like it's it's overtaxing. So I'll take the hour challenge and hopefully everybody else that's listening will. I'm going to shift gears. We've talked a lot about the science that you've applied, cycles, trends, um, the types of trends, some examples. But I want to talk about Daniel Burris. 40 years of doing this, you started out as a teacher. What you know motivated you or caused you, triggered you to get out of the classroom to begin becoming a futurist? Well, that's a great question. You know, I uh, like I said, I was put on the planet to teach. I loved teaching. I actually got a Educator of the Year, my first year award, so I was good at it. But I uh, during the summer, I had an idea for an airplane design and uh, and kind of got involved in making that happen. And before I knew it, I was making my annual salary on a weekend, and it didn't take long for that to happen. And I started thinking, you know, I kind of like this entrepreneurial thing. So I left teaching, I got into that business, which did really well, and I had 37 national locations in the first year. And it turned out I had a knack for business. I started another one, another one. So within two years, I had four different companies, all of them doing really well. However, I missed teaching. I missed the teaching part. And something I've always done, I don't know why, but I took myself out to, let's say, being 95 years old. I picked that number. And I looked back at myself and I said, if this is how I spend the professional part of my life, because I was about to open up a new manufacturing plant out on the West Coast, if this is how I'm going to spend the rest of my life, am I happy with my life? And the answer was no. So once I knew that, I already saw the future and it wasn't what I was doing. So I sold those companies and I spent a year doing research and launched my company Burris Research 40 years ago. And that led me back to what? Teaching. Because, you know, as you've, I've written uh, thousands of articles, seven uh, books, uh, given thousands of speeches, and, and I've got the learning system. Basically, I didn't go back to teaching. I went forward to teaching. And there's another principle that I teach. Remember, there's 28 lessons in the learning system. One of them is uh, to take your biggest problem and skip it which probably is one of one of my favorites, and most people love that one. And what I did is I skipped all the parts I didn't like about teaching. One of the things I didn't like is the limitation of the classroom. There's only so many students there, but I've got a lot of wisdom to share. Well, I skipped that, and I made the classroom planet Earth. I didn't like the limitation of an educational institution. Well, I skipped that. I don't work for one. I do my own thing. 
I skipped all the things I didn't like, and it worked out really well. One last thing I'll share that might be insightful for people. When I left education to start business, I had no business classes. I never took a business class. I was learning. I knew about science. So there was fear of failure. I had fear of failure because, you know, I, I don't know anything about business. And so a fear can keep us from moving forward. But here's what helped me. I realized, oh, I got a lot more fear than that. Why don't I get all my fears out on the table? So I started putting all my fears out on the table, and there was one that trumped them all. It was the fear of regret. I didn't want to be in my late 90s and wished I had tried something. And actually, that was a bigger fear than failure. So actually, fear helped me move forward to do what I did. So here's the insight I'm just sharing, because there's another lesson I just taught everyone. And that is, hey, you got more than one fear. Why don't you lay them out? And you might find that fear is the very thing that can help you to go forward. By the way, that's an opposite and it can work better. There's a, I wrestled, my kids wrestled. Dan Gable, who was a famous wrestling coach, has a famous quote, the, the fear of regret or the fear of discipline, which is worse. And the, the discipline removes the regret. It sounds like kind of that you're in that right that that right mode that I don't want to have the regret. So I'm going to go ahead and apply the discipline and see where it takes me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the biggest downside would be it would fail and I would go back to doing what I did before. So, you know, you've, you've got to look at what's the upside and what's the downside as well. But I think, again, there's so much opportunity for us, Art, regardless of your age. Let me underline that, too. Uh, a lot of people think to themselves, you know, I'm already 50 or I'm already 60 or I'm already 70 or I'm already 80 uh, or heck, I'm already 90. I mean, you didn't want to tell that to George Burns and some of those other people when they turn 90. Uh, I heard Dr. Uh, Norman Vincent Peel give a speech at 91 and it was quite pretty amazing. In other words, what I'm getting at is our limitations are all found by looking in the mirror in the morning. They're all self-imposed. So what is limiting you? The answer is you. And I know that sounds kind of like, yeah, 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 Dan, so what? No, 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 this is, uh, this is actually amazingly profound and powerful. We are our own limiter. And opportunity, there's so much abundant uh, opportunity out there. You need to pursue it. Well, now I'm going to have to go home at night and turn all the sounds off and sit in a chair and ponder that one for a little bit. But that <laughs> sounds like great, profound advice. So we end every one of our Empower Hours with five questions. We call it the final countdown. What did you dream of becoming when you were in middle school? In middle school, I thought I would be a marine biologist and uh, studying the oceans. And I, as a matter of fact, when I started uh, college, I decided I was started out in that field, but I realized that you had to get a PhD in order to do more than just hold the tanks for somebody else. And it seemed <laughs> so far away that uh, I shifted. And obviously, I stayed in the sciences, but I never, never did that. But that's what I was thinking at the time. So Daniel's always got to be in the action. Who inspires you? Every single person that I meet, everyone. Because what's amazing is you get what you look for. And I think what I'm what I find with everything, every person that I I find and I talk to, and I talk to everybody, whether it's a cab driver or anybody else, there are jewels in all of them. There are amazing stories in all of them. 
They're amazing. They, we're all living more amazing lives than we think. And I'm especially inspired by all of those that have applied the principles that I teach. I have a uh, scholarship I give out every year. It's a global thing for high school age. And what I do is I have them write how they applied one of my 28 principles in their community to do something amazing. And then, you know, we we pick and give out scholarships based on that. Well, you know, that that inspires me what these young people are doing when they learn how to skip a problem or they learn how to use a hard trend. So I just am inspired by just about everybody. Great answer. And that sounds like it would be fun to read through all of those. Even the the ones that don't make it to the top would be fun to read. Oh, oh it, it's a blessing. Daniel, what is your favorite life hack? Yeah, I've been uh, doing meditation since uh, I was just out of college and trying to, you know, the all the answers we tend to look for on the outside, but most of the answers can be found on the inside when we dig deep enough. And I think, you know, getting in that, so I, I do meditate quite a bit. Obviously, I love family and friends and the company of others, but, you know, I want to be the best me I can be. And it's a journey to be the best me I can be. So being mindful. So what has been your most valuable failure? Probably the most valuable failure would be, oh, I know what it is. It came to me. Uh, there we go. Back in 1986. I was giving a speech to the 40 top executives of IBM. Uh, It was a four-hour presentation. They were sitting in a big round, and I had four hours, and I was trying to convince them, and a lot of you don't know this history because you're too young for this, but I was trying to convince them that their profitability was going to shift over a short period of years from hardware to software, but they would still have hardware. And when I was finished, They all said it was a great speech and patted me on the back, but I knew that I had failed because I had not really convinced them that that was indeed going to happen. And obviously, uh, some of you know, in 1993, IBM almost lost the business because of that shift. Now, the good news is a lot of of those people in IBM ended up buying my book, Technotrends, which was just coming out at that time and started using me a lot. But, you know, I knew that I didn't get through to them. And what it did is it helped me make every other speech much better because, you know, a a failure also gives you a gift. And that is the gift of uh, learning and seeing what you can do better. So I took that failure to be much better. And that's how I learned to talk about future facts and hard trends versus soft trends and really bring it more to life. That's, I mean, that's the value in a failure. So that's, that's spot on. It sounds like a, that I'd rewind some of that, that life and realizing about what did happen to IBM because they were so set on the, the physical thing as opposed to the soft thing. Last question. You obviously work pretty hard, lots of books, lots of travel, thousands of speeches, uh, who knows how many countless pages you've written. You work really hard. How do you play to balance life? Well, it's always a challenge when you do what you love. I mean, I've had uh, people ask me, uh, you know, when when would I retire because I'm not working for financial reasons anymore in a way because I'm done well. And uh, my answer is I can't retire from being me. But but so, I, you know, I mean, I'm just doing, uh, see, I know why I was put on the planet. I'm blessed. I know I'm here. And I'm just doing what I was put on the planet to do. However, I do have a lot of fun. I have an amazing number of things that I love to do. I love to, uh, in San Diego, where I am right now, I love to go sailing. 
have a place, a lake place in Wisconsin. I love to get out on the boats. I love to do motorcycles. I love photography. Actually, I'll give one last little uh, thing that I would like us to consider in here. And this would be one I'd like you to share with your son, too, as food for thought. And that is uh, when I was 23, I made a commitment to myself that I have stayed with all these decades. Because at 23, I thought to myself, when people get into their 90s, remember I said I also kind of go out to being in my 90s, have they tapped in and learned and experienced all that's inside of them? Or has most of it gone undiscovered? And I thought, man, probably most people haven't discovered all that's inside. I'd like to not let that happen to me. So I made a commitment here was, I decided to do and learn one new thing a year. One new thing every year. One year, I learned how to make fancy dives off a diving board. One year, I learned how to scuba dive. One year, I learned how to fly. One year, I learned, there was an open mic at a comedy club, and I learned I went and did that, even though it was scary. One year, I learned how to dance. One year, I learned how to cook. One year, uh, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. One year, I learned how to play a flute. Well, decades have added up. It has given me this amazing, rich life and uh, life experiences. And obviously, there's a lot of those things I still tap into at this time to enjoy life. And as you might guess, I'm seldom bored. Yep. Nope. That sounds like a wonderful blessing. So I'm going to say thank you. If anyone that's listened today wants to know more, read the books, see the top trends for 2023, which is the 40th year of those trends. Um, you can visit burris.com, which is um, www.burrus.com. I know, Daniel, you may not remember this, about a year and a half ago, we had a, a conversation back and forth on on Twitter. And so I found you to be very accessible then and very accessible now. Really, thank you for the lessons today. Thank you. My pleasure. Time's up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Empower Hour. Join us next time by subscribing to Empower Hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred listening platform. Want more GBQ? We don't blame you. Visit us online at gbq.com for the business news and advice that matters most. Who is empowering your growth?